Hey guys, it's Ed coming to you from the Drunk Passive Studios. And today is a very special episode. Um, it is our true crime episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you like this, please let me know. If you want me to stop, let me know that too. Um, I I found the the true crime genre um, when I worked on a story for um, vocal media about the McDonald's scam, and I loved it. And since that time, I've done... It has to be over 100 articles that, that are true crime alone, not including my pop culture and or sex articles. And I have two satire articles on there, too. Um, we'll talk about the satire some other time because it's just... Whew. I did I did really well with satire in the um, over on Generation Gossip, but for vocal, I just haven't found the right voice for that yet. Anyways... This is not about satire. This is about true crime, and there is one one story that really bothers me, and I don't know that it's technically true crime, um, but I think it there's enough um, crime in here that it, it can easily be labeled that. So porn star Kyle Dean died last September of uh, September of 2018 and this would be unremarkable except for a couple things first of all he was only 21 now okay let's be honest 21 year olds do die but he was in great physical health um there were no diseases that were known to the public and the other thing that kind of strikes me as odd is when he died um, just a couple months beforehand, there had been a rash of um, young gay porn stars dying. One was found in a Cadoba bathroom. Now, the, the other deaths were attributed to drug overdose. Um, Kyle's wasn't. There's actually no known cause of death for Kyle. I've reached out to the proper police department. I've not heard back yet from them. But as I said in in my article um, for Vocal, was Kyle being killed? It actually would make more sense if he had been killed because um, he did have a drug problem. Um, People would talk about um, the kind of drugs he would do. His favorite was Xanax, which which seems to be very popular with a lot of people. Um, maybe someone suggested that maybe he owed the wrong people money. And of course, that's, that is always a possibility. Mm-hmm. Nobody is ever going to say, oh my God, no, like that's just, that's just not possible. What are, what are you talking about? Of course, it's a possibility. We all knew it was a possibility. What we also know is that the porn industry is very shady. And what I mean by that is not, they're not like, oh, girl, 
you look good like a tree trunk. No. <laughs> um, they deal with shady and unsavory characters. Um, some companies have ties to the mob. And I can't help but wonder if that's not the case with Kyle Dean. You know, he got caught up with someone, a producer perhaps. Because here's the thing. He started out doing straight porn. Then he started, um, when the straight porn offers started to dry up, no pun intended, um, he started doing gay porn. But he was a top. Now, I know a lot of straight guys who say um, if if they were to do gay porn, they would have to be the top. Not that big of a deal. I get it, you know, whatever. But then, somewhere along the way, he switched over to bottoming. Now, here's the natural progression of these kind of scenarios. Usually, the guy will start out as a bottom, progress to a top, and then progress over to straight porn. So the fact that Kyle went in reverse suggests that he was on some kind of downward spiral. He was also only 18 and very easily influenced, which I think played a big part here. Was he killed? I we may not, never know. I'm trying to piece things together. Um, I'm reaching out to his uh, his mother and his family to see if they have anything they want to say. Um, but I, I do believe that there could have been a serial killer out there killing these young gay porn stars or young gay-for-pay porn stars because something just doesn't add up here. I'm going to stay on top of this case and I will let you know um, what I can find. And I sound so Nancy Drewish. Um, Alright guys. Um, enjoy the rest of the episode. Please let me know what you think. And I will be right back with our next segment. And I'm back. So, I wanted to talk tonight for tonight's true crime story. I want to talk about um, the Oakland County child killer. A.K.A. the Babysitter Killer. Alright, so this one, you guys have to know, um, is very close. It's very close to my um, heart and my home. Because the areas I'm about to talk about are areas I know very intimately. This is where I lived um, for a very long time. So... You know, this is not necessarily something that we talk about there. But as a Michigan boy, I I do need to tell you that um, this case is is probably one of the ones that hit closest to uh, to me because again, it's where I lived, and um, yeah, so. The very first case, um, or at least the first one that was reported and known, 
Uh, the victim's name was Mark Stebbins. He was 12 years old, and he was leaving the American Legion in Ferndale, Michigan. Ferndale happens to be the um, city I lived in um, before I moved to New York. So he left, and he told his mom that he was going to go home. He was tired, whatever. So he left the Legion and started heading home. And then no one heard from him. And they got scared. And, you know, when the mom got home, she noticed that he wasn't there and was like, what's going on? So she ended up calling the police and he went out looking for him. His body was found February 19th, um, 1976, on a snowbank, neatly laid out. Um, And if if you're from the area, then you'll know where I'm talking about. It was in... At Tim Island Greenfield. Um, now, there's a little bit of controversy about whether that was in Southfield or Oak Park because they're so close together that you really don't know. Um, but that's not important here. What's important is he had been murdered, neatly laid out, and he'd been raped. Um, now, there's some speculation that it was it wasn't an actual rape that he was... Um, that whoever did this used some sort of apparatus. Um, other people, including um, some of the police, um, police people, policemen, who went, were at the scene and who have talked about the case, know about the case, said no, this was an actual rape. Like it was. Um, I don't want to get too graphic because it is a twelve-year-old. Or was a 12-year-old. Um, but they they did make mention that this was not like a bottle or something. Um, and then the next one, she was again 12. Her name was Jill Robinson. And she was running away from home just before Christmas in 1976. Uh, after she disappeared... Um, this was in Red Oak. I, I used to go to school in Red Oak, and I um, lived there for for some brief for some brief time, for a brief time. Um, and there's a hobby store on Main Street. If you don't know what Main Street is, um, basically, it, <laughs> this is gonna sound really sarcastic, but it's Main Street of Red Oak. Um, everything's on there. All like all the restaurants. Um, the I don't think there are any clubs on that. Maybe there are. Um, they go to the community colleges there, whatever. And they found that she was killed by a single shot from a 12-gauge gun. 12, 12-gauge shotgun. And again, her body was laid out where it was easily found. So this guy wanted these bodies found. We don't know why. The next one was um, Christine Milik of Berkeley. She was last seen just after New Year's Day, January 2nd, 1977. She had gone to the 7-Eleven. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, on 12 Mile at Oakshire in Berkeley. Um, this one took a little bit longer to find. She wasn't found until January 21st, 1977. 
But again, fully clothed and plain sight. It's really interesting that he puts these kids out in plain sight. And... Um, and, and I just double-checked. Mark Ste- Stebbins was also fully dressed. So whatever he's doing to these kids, raping them or whatever, he, he's doing it and then making sure that they're fully dressed before he lays their bodies out to be found. Um, Timothy King uh, was 11. Again, it was... March 16th, 1977. He went to the store to get some candy. And never came home. He was found by a Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's not saying where exactly... Oh, 8 Mile in Livernois in Wayne County. So so this time he's way out there. Um, And like Mark, he was suffocated. So the two girls were shot, the two boys were suffocated, which tells me that um, whoever, whoever the Oakland County serial killer is, um, he was raping the boys and just killing the girls for fun, I, don't, I guess. Um, There were a ton of suspects. Um, there was... Um, uh, there were a ton of suspects. One person calling himself Alan. Who said, yes, I did this. Um, Archibald Sloan was a pedophile who was actually known to rape little boys. Um, but the hair samples didn't match. And then there's Chris Bush. Um, he was the son of a General Motors executive. Uh, and, and there were, um, shells from the bullets found in his room. Um, and a picture that really resembled Mark Stebbins. But they were never able to make make anything stick. This case is unsolved. Which is really a tragedy because the, these parents deserve to have, you know... I mean, the parents are uh, have probably are of an age now where either they've already died or they're dying, but... The families deserve to know what happened to their relative. Um, if the parents are still alive, they they deserve justice. Uh, I'm gonna eventually write about this. Maybe even do a book. I'm sure uh, my best friend would love that because if I do a book, that would mean I'd have to spend more time in Michigan, and he's he's really all about that. <laughs> but. Um, that's just, that's just a drop in the bucket. Um, the Oakland County, um, child killer, aka the babysitter killer. If you have any information, please reach out to 
um, Ferndale Royal Oak Police, um, if, if they're not the ones handling the case anymore, they will lead you in the right direction um, to the authorities that are handling the case. And I'm going to go, and I will be right back. And I'm back. So, okay. Before we get into this, um, this week, last week we had a drunk writing, um, theme, I guess you would say. This week we're going to do, um, more like a drunk crime. And, um, I just want to let you know that some of these stories will end up being done for the vlog, um, probably in a, in a deeper dive type thing, where I talk more about it, get into more of the details and whatnot. Um, particularly this story because it is so convoluted and really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I'm actually going to try to go next week to the trial. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. It depends on um, a couple of things. But my goal is to actually um, cover this um, for a book. Because, it, like I said, it's just so fascinating. So, if you guys haven't heard of Anna Delvey, let me tell you about her. She's also known now as Anna Sorkin. So, Anna Delvey is also known as the fake heiress. She swooped into New York City and was staying at Trendy Hotel 11 Howard. Now, let me tell you a little bit about 11 Howard. Um, my reading group actually used to meet there every Thursday. And... It is very swanky. A burger costs twenty-five dollars. Um I used to order a grilled cheese and tomato soup. And to be to be quite honest, I missed that because it was so delicious. Um but in any case, um and that was eighteen dollars. Eighteen dollars for fucking grilled cheese and tomato soup, guys. That that is the kind of place that this is. Um, <clears throat> so Anna gave off this impression of being a very wealthy heiress. And she met um Neff Davis, who works as a concierge at Eleven Howard, and um Rachel Williams who is a photo editor at uh, Vanity Fair. And both women talked about how they got swept up into this whole thing with her. And it, it was a very, um, like, as, they, as they're telling their story, I'm, I, you know, in such a short segment, I'm not going to be able to do it justice, but... Um, Williams was talking about a vacation they took to uh, Makra. And during this uh, vacation, they, it was so extravagant. They got, they, when their plane landed, they got their luggage and there were limousines waiting to carry them into this villa. 
And the villa was just so perfect and everything. And it was $7,000 a night. And Anna told Rachel, don't worry about it. I got you, girl. Um, along And on this trip, there was also a trainer and um, a videographer because Anna wanted to make a documentary about this nightclub that she was starting. And she wanted to get used to always having a camera around. Um, and Neff, the concierge, would go out to really extravagant dinners with her. Um, and she tells a story about how at one point, like, she met Macaulay Culkin and, like, her jaw literally dropped. Um, she also talked about how when she was, um, they were, they were hanging out, um, with the farmer bro. I can never remember his name properly, even though I just wrote about it. Anyway, so she's hanging out with farmer bro. And he plays the Carter Five, and Neff tweets about it, and Anna got so pissed off. and was like, you gotta take that down. And she refused. Neff was like, no, like, I want the world to know. Like, I've heard this shit. Like, this is music that's highly anticipated. I, I want them to know that I got to hear this. Um... So, Anna didn't go down to the desk for, like, three days. Now, this was highly unusual because she was down there every day before that. And she passed out hundreds, like, I pass out tequila shots. Um, um, So, there was a lot of, like, oh my god, like, whispering. So the culmination in all of this, um, and you can read it in my two articles that are, one's out now, it's called The Magician of Manhattan, which is all about Neff and Rachel's um, journey with Anna. And then the second one, the second article is coming out later this week, and it's called um, A Victim of Her Own Lies. And so the whole culmination is... um, Anna was a liar and a fraud. She's up in Rikers Island right now. And she's facing, like, a lot of charges. Because she was stealing money from banks. Um, she stole... Or she defrauded $62,000 from Rachel. Although, um, I'm not sure what's going on with that, that case. Because technically, that happened in a different country. And I'm not sure that the United States has jurisdiction over that. Um, but she would, like she stayed at 11 Howard, never paid her bill. She stayed at um, um, Beekerman Hotel, never paid her bill. Eventually no hotel would rent out to her because they never got their money. And she wasn't staying at these like cheap little ass holiday inns. Not that there's anything wrong with the Holiday Inn, but, you know, they're not cheap hotels. These were five-star hotels. Um, you Google Hotel New York City, you're probably going to run into these. Um, but there's so much more. Uh, like I said, th- it's going to go on the vlog. 
I'm going to work with Will. We're going to set up a time where I can actually film this. And um, and I really do want to go to the trial. But so this week is Drunk Crime Week, guys. If there's a case you want me to cover, you know what to do. Email me at authoredanderson.com. Um, Facebook, Instagram, author Ed Anderson. Twitter, at author Ed A. And I am going to go... And I will be right back. Okay. I'm back. I Again, I apologize. I didn't realize that we were going into 10 minutes for the last segment. So, we're going to go ahead and... This is going to be our last segment. Um, the, the, there was a less minute update, but it wasn't anything that serious. CBS has officially ordered an investigation and a special counsel. There. Now you're all caught up. Um... I, I do want to talk about um, my my first true crime article. It's called The Forgotten Mix Scam. Um, you can find it over on um, local media on, in the criminal section. It's, it's I think it's like criminal.media. If you type that into your browser, it should come up. Or you type in um, The Forgotten Mix Scam, and it should theoretically pull up my article. Um, you'll know it's me because it'll say Edward Anderson. Um, you all can call me Ed. I just use Edward for um, what my more formal jobs. So, okay. Picture this. It's 1986. McDonald's is having their one of their um, Monopoly competitions. And everything seems to be normal. There's a man in charge of it, in charge of the security part. His name is Jerome Jacobson. Jerome is, um, he's really the center of this whole thing. So, Jerome witnesses his company acting shady. And, um, basically... There was a computerized thing where um, the computer would select where the winners would go to. Well, the first time they ran it, it was supposed to go to Canada. And they were like, no, it has to be within the U.S. So they reran the program. Not that big of a deal, right? Well, he thought it was, and... Basically, took that as a sign that the gods were telling him to cheat the system. So he started, he had already stolen, like, one piece and gave it to his stepbrother. So he, he, and then he stole another piece and sold it to his butcher friend. But he wasn't really in it for that. So then he started getting into it for the money. And he partnered with, um, in 91... He partnered with someone called Gerano Colombo. You can't make these names up. So Gerano Colombo um, was a, a mafia dude. He owned a lot of, like, quote-unquote adult nightclubs, which I think is really just code for strip clubs, um, underground casinos, and things like that. So Gerardo and Jerome made a ton of money 
selling these instant winning pieces. And honestly, no one, if Durano had stayed involved, no one would have ever caught on to what was going on. But tragically, Durano died in a car accident. He and his wife, Robin, um, they had a really quick two-week courtship, fell madly in love, as, as one does, or as a couple does, I guess. And they got married. Um, their marriage was cut short when, after a big fight in North Carolina, they were going to move to Georgia, and they were going to see a house, and Durano was killed in a car accident. There's a lot more to it, but I'm not going to get into all that. So, um, Jerome started pairing up with all these really... Uh, I don't want to say bad, because they're all bad, but these these guys that were really just not a good fit. And... So... Um, Dwight Baker was the last one that he kind of paired up with. And Baker is kind of what got them caught, because he was giving to, like, family friends and whatnot, and... The FBI, there was a special agent, um, I don't remember his first name, which you would think I would since I worked on that damn article for, like, five hours, which I know isn't a really long time, but go with it. Um, it was was Special Agent Dent, I don't remember his first name, um, created this whole thing, and there was, like, a golden triangle of instant winning McDonald tickets, within a 25-mile area of Jerome's house. And so basically what happened was they were brought down because they got greedy and these people would say, oh, you know, let's bring my sister or my brother, not realizing that people were actually tracking where all these winners were. We don't know who the tipster was, although... um, my theory is that the tipster that um, that tipped off the FBI that something was amiss was Robin herself because she went from um, being a mafia wife to a child of God. Um, if you want more information on this, like I said, just um, go to Vogel, the criminal section. Um, the Forgotten Mix Scam is my article. All the details are in there, the whole story. It's very sordid, very soap opera-y. May become my first true crime book. I'm not 100% sure yet. Um, I'm kind of letting it rest because I was so frustrated yesterday. I am out for the day. Um, I may be out for the weekend. I'm not 100% sure yet. Um, but I'm raising my glass to you and saying cheers for now. And I am back. So, as... I have told you, um, yesterday, this is True Crime Week here on Drunk Gossip, and we're having a lot of fun with it. Um, yesterday we talked about Anna Delvery, or, depending on when you're listening, the last segment, um, in any case, um, I joke, I joke. 
in any case, uh, you know, one of the things I, I love about true crime is that it happens everywhere. And some of these stories are really twisted and fun. Like, our next case, which has been on my radar for a while. I've never written about it. I'm, I'm definitely contemplating it. Um, whether it's an article or it's uh, a book, I think it would be an, an interesting research project. I am talking about the Fatty Arbuckle case. So, if you don't know who Fatty Arbuckle was, um, in the 1920s, in the very, very, very early 1920s, he was the most famous movie star in the world. Not just in the United States, but in the entire world, he was the most famous. Um, in 1921, he was the highest paid actor. He was making $1 million, um, I believe it was per picture. Or maybe it was per, um, it wasn't per week. Maybe it was $1 million per year. Anyways, back then that was a lot of money and he he wielded a lot of power. And he enjoys his life, which you should, um. But, along with that came, uh, I'm trying to think about the best way to say this, along with, along with, with that power and the fame and the money, came a lot of, um, people disliking him. So, I mean, obviously a lot of people liked him, they, you know, he was one of the richest men in the world. But there were a lot of people who didn't like him. Um, one such person, her name was Maud. Um, I Maud Delmont. Um, but we're gonna get to Maud in a minute. So, there was a party on September fifth, nineteen twenty-one. Um, hosted by Fatty Arbuckle. And it was at the St. Joseph. I'm, uh, I'm just double-checking here to make sure I have the right hotel name. Uh, St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. Um, there were a lot of people in attendance, Maud Delmont, um, and the eventual victim, Virginia Rapp. So, basically, this was during Prohibition, so you weren't supposed to have alcohol, but there was a lot of alcohol flowing. Virginia got a little bit, served a little bit too much, and allegedly she started taking off her clothes. Now, this was not an uncommon practice for her. Um, Some people said that she would get drunk and take off her clothes because she had um, a liver like a problem with her liver and taking off her clothes helped it for some reason? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, but so, so she would take off her clothes. Other people said that she was a, um amateur call girl. Which I don't know how you're amateur because if you're sleeping with men for money, 
I mean, if, if, if you're making money doing anything, you're no longer an amateur, you're a professional. So don't know what they mean by that. I think they're just trying to be insulting, to be honest. Uh, but in any case, um, at some point, Fatty Arbuckle and Virginia disappeared together into his room. And Maud decided that she was going to find out what was going on after about a half hour of them being gone. So she went in the room and knocked on the door. Fred Arbuckle answered with a gimpish smile on his face. And a bathroom very loosely tied around him. Allegedly, Virginia Rapp said Arbuckle did it. As she writhed in pain on the on the bed. Now, what we would find out later is Maud Delmont was known for setting up these really scandalous situations and then blackmailing celebrities to get them to do whatever she wanted them to do. And so there are some people who believe that that's what happened in this case. Um, Virginia, for her part, um, kept rising in pain, and when the ambulance was called, she was taken into the hospital, where she stayed for three days before eventually dying. It was a huge scandal. Fatty Arbuckle was immediately Um, arrested for rape and eventually murder. And he stood trial for this three times. The first two times resulted in a hung jury. The third time resulted in an acquittal where the jury actually read an apology to him that said, we hope the American people can um, realize that we found him innocent and he is able to have a life and career again. Blah, blah, blah. Um, Fatty Arbuckle never worked again after that. Uh, at least not on screen. He would try to um, direct, but he never quite found his footing. And just a couple of years later, at the age of 44, he died of a heart attack. To this day, it's, it's debated whether or not he, he had anything to do with her death. Um, or if he was just a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we're, and the, a lot of people are trying to figure out what role Maude Delmont played in this. And why she was so eager to assign blame to Fatty Arbuckle. Sadly, I mean, this is just one of those things that we're never, we're never going to have the answer to. But it is a fascinating crime. It's a fascinating case study. Um, eventually I will write about it. Eventually I will, um, probably do a vlog on it because I'm going to forget that I ever recorded this segment. (laughs) No, but, you know, there, there are always more details and more twists and theories to the case, so... Eventually, we'll end up on the vlog. Um, I think Will and I have a pretty, a pretty decent start here. Um, 
we have the Phil Hartman case, we have Anna Delvey, which we're going to dive into, and a couple other cases, possibly even the Jesse Smollett case, if if that investigation ever ends. <laughs> and speaking of ending, I'm going to go and I will be right back. And I'm back. Did you miss me? <laughs> um, so tonight's true crime includes the kind of salacious gossip that makes me scream with an orgasm. And yes, I realize how that sounds while I'm talking about a murder, but I mean, truly, this is one of those just excellent, ex- excellent um, true crime stories. Um, the story's not yet published, but it, I, I'm writing actually two articles based on this story. Um, one is tentatively titled... Um, again, it's not published yet, so the editors may change the, the title. Um, Superman, Super Killed. Which is a dorky title and completely... Um, just... I, I, when, I, when I wrote the title, I, was, I thought it was clever. And then when I said it out loud, I was like, oh my god, it's horrible. And the other is called The Superman Haunting. Um, we're going to talk a little about both articles in this segment, and there's a very good chance later on down the road that Will and I will record an episode all about this case, because it truly is fascinating. Um, and it goes to show how much power these Hollywood players had back in the 1950s and 60s. So George Reeves um, played Superman in the Adventures of Superman um, in the mid-50s. I, I, I'm not worried about exact dates, and I don't think you guys are either. That's not why we came here. Um, anyway, so during this time, uh, he he had like a bunch of acclaim. And if, but after the series ended, he wasn't getting work. Before that, he was working a ton, but he became so synonymous with the role of Superman. That he wasn't getting any work. So, what does this all mean? To to be honest, nothing really. In the grand scheme of things, all it meant was he had more time to have an affair with Tony. I keep wanting to call her Mannix. Oh, it is Mannix. Tony Mannix, who was the wife of. Uh, Eddie Mannix, who was who ran MGM at the time. So, so he had an affair with her, and then he met Lenore. Um, Lenore Lemon. So the night in question, the night that we're talking about, Lenore and three friends were having this party. And he and George Reeves tromped downstairs because he, he was so pissed off at the loud noise. And he yelled at them all, whatever. Then, allegedly, he went back up and shot himself. But there's a problem with this theory that he shot himself. First of all, Lenore waited for more than an hour to call the police after she heard the shot. Secondly, there were more 
then three uh, there were there were three bullets found one went straight through Reeves's skull and into the ceiling and then there were two more in the floor so now uh, theories abound that George Reeves was killed but who killed him um, one theory has it that Tony Mannix was really pissed off that he ended their affair and got engaged to Lenore. So she she decided that she was going to take matters into her own hands and, and murder him. The second theory is that Eddie Mannix learned of the affair. And decided that no actor was going to disrespect him and killed. The problem with these two theories is... How would... How would either of them snuck past the four people, shot him, and then snuck back out without being seen? I'm not saying they're wrong because we don't know and we'll never know for sure. I'm just saying that there seems there's some sort of logical disconnect there. My theory is that Tony learned of the affair, or I'm sorry, not Tony. Lenore learned of the affair with Tony, and decided that she was not going to be made a fool of. Especially after he embarrassed her in front of her friends. Went up, shot him, realized what she'd done, and concocted the suicide explanation. The cops never really looked into it. it even though there was overwhelming evidence that this was a murder, they, they kind of just were like, mm, okay, yeah, it makes sense that he killed himself and we're just going to go ahead and mark this as a suicide and they did for whatever reason it's not something that is easily explainable I'm not even sure that people want to hear the actual reasoning or any reasoning for that matter but um, I, I really do, I, I truly do believe that it makes more sense that this was Lenore than anyone else. And again, I'm not trying to say that Tony or Eddie were innocent. They, maybe they played a part in it. Maybe they gave Lenore money. Or maybe they planted the idea in her head. We'll never know for sure. So, why did I bring up the ghost part? I did that because, rumor has it, the house is still standing. And it's been sold and resold so many times it's not even funny now. But rumor has it that if you live in there, George Reeves will appear to you in his Superman costume. And it freaked out one couple so bad that they left the same night that they bought the house. They they actually backed out of the deal to buy the house because they were so freaked out by seeing his ghost. Now, I don't know how spiritual everyone is. Um, 
but my my experience um in researching and learning about ghosts um for a comedy <laughs> yes I actually did some research for a comedy people um suggests that a ghost is either around to protect you or they're around to um because their death is unresolved and a lot of people truly believe that George Reeves is around because his death is unresolved. I, I, I don't know what more there is to say about that. Um, you know, I hope one day that we can get resolution, but it's very doubtful because everyone involved in that situation has now passed away. And therefore, we're not going to be able to get to the truth. And I was sorry for that. I was taking a drink. Um, so, that is the short story of George Reeves. As I said, I'm, I'm probably going to expand upon this in a future vlog. Um, if you, if you want to see any of our vlogs, um, sign up for our Patreon. Author Ed A., and I am going to go and be right back. And I'm back. So, tonight's true crime story, the, um, well, not really the last one of the week because um, there's going to be a compilation episode tomorrow. Um, but, um, the last one for the, at least, you know, for the daily shows. I don't know what I'm saying right now. <laughs> Which actually kind of leads right into this crazy, crazy story. Like, this is such a crazy story that I might even forego writing a script about. Or, script. Oof. And see where my mind's at. I might forego writing an article about it and just write the damn book because it is such a fascinating story. Um... It, it is kind of old school, but it's so, it, it's just one of those things, it's one of those cases where it's so twisted and so mind-blowing that, wow. Um, so there's a couple different threads here. Um, normally, I would break it up, but I'm not going to do that tonight. The first thread is a love triangle between... Oh, why are you being a douchebag? Um, John, I'm trying to find the last name for you guys. Um, be John, 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 uh, John Rutten, his wife, Sherry. I don't think Sherry took his last name. I Sherry's last name is R Romson. Rasmussen. Rasmussen. We're just gonna call her Sherry from here on out. And um, the third part of this story is Stephanie Lazarus. Um. Yeah, so 
sorry, I, like, I, I know there were a lot of pauses. I was just trying to get the names right because it's just one of those those things where I, like, I, I feel like it's actually an important part of the whole story. Anyway, so John, Sherry, and Stephanie. John apparently dated both Sherry and Stephanie at the same time for for a little while, though he claims that he and Stephanie were never very serious and they were just lovers. Stephanie, on the other hand, didn't quite feel that the same way. Um, so, John was a police, um, a police then. Sherry was a nurse, and Stephanie was also a cop, um, who rose through the ranks. So in 1986, this love triangle kind of came to a head. And Sherry was killed. The police that were investigating it cleared John right away. They, you know, because John was grief-stricken, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they said that it was a robbery. Which didn't sit right with um, Nels Rossman, who said, that doesn't make sense, why don't you look at the lady cop? And the police are like, no, it, it was definitely a robbery. Two Latin men had been robbing houses um, in this area. It, th- this is all happening in Los Angeles. Um, two Latin men have been robbing. That's, that's what happened here. That's definitely what happened here. So then we're going to move into the second thread now. Where all this evidence is collected. No one's charged with the murder ever. Well, for for many years. No one is charged with the murder. Because no one's really looking into it. It was two Latin men who killed her, right? Ah. So, what basically happens here is the police look into it and it gets kind of shelved. And then as the murder rate in Los Angeles starts to fall, the cold cases are kind of pushed again. And now the father of Sherry keeps saying, hey, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Um, and he gets, he goes on some TV shows and, you know, is really making up a big stink. And then evidence goes missing in the case. And it's like a big cliffhanger because why did this evidence go missing? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So then, the third thread kind of brings everything back around to the love triangle. Sometime after Sherry's death, John and Stephanie meet up in Hawaii. And, you know, no... People can make assumptions about what happened there. Um, In all of the articles I've read on this, nothing implies that something happened, but... I would venture a guess that it did. He's a widower... She's still hot for him. Eventually she ended up marrying someone else and whatever. So, 
So they meet up and then the the cops start looking at the case again. And one of the, part of the evidence I had to think of missing was there was a bite mark on Sherry after the fight. And the cops at the time were like, no, men bite, you know. It's not common, but it happens. So they... Well, part of the evidence that, um, that didn't go missing couldn't... It, they just couldn't find it, so they they searched through the um, evidence freezers and they found the envelope with, with Rasmussen written on it. So they had to check. The DNA couldn't... There's no matches, but they were like, it definitely came from a woman. But again, nothing really came of this revelation, and everything was shelved. Basically, the new theory was, it was still a robbery, but it was a man and a woman. And that's that's kind of where it, it left off for a very long time, and then... Once again, the crime rate dropped, and these detectives were going through cold cases. And they were like, wait a minute. Something's not right here. Like, why did all this evidence go missing, whatever? So they look into this, and they start to piece together this whole story. So basically what happened was, Stephanie confronting and, and tormenting Sherry trying to provoke her into and leaving John because Stephanie wanted him back and Sherry was in love with her husband and was like no like not gonna happen lady like get over it so after all this fighting and whatnot there was um, there was a big confrontation Stephanie broke into the house. She went through the garage door. And instead of Stephanie coming down... Or, sorry, Sherry coming downstairs and catching the robbers. Stephanie went upstairs and surprised Sherry. Big fight ensued. Sherry tried to run downstairs to hit the panic button on her home security system. And she got shot twice. Stephanie decided to try to cover this up, make it look like a home invasion. And she would have gotten away with it too if she hadn't left fingerprints and just really bad. And it, I mean, not fingerprints because she had on rubber gloves, but like smudges of blood. And so the cops who ultimately solved the crime were like, this is really weird. Like, this looks like it was staged. And um, and basically after John was asked way back in the beginning of the investigation, John was asked to confirm or deny his relationship with Stephanie and he said, yeah, like she was an old flame, whatever, whatever. And then Martha and Stephanie Lazarus P.O. And the, for a time, they couldn't figure out what Peel meant, and then they figured it out. Peel meant police officer. And um, two of the detectives, 
when to their commanding officer and were like, hey, we're investigating her, should, you know, should we go to internal affairs? And they said, no, keep it confidential for now. So they kept it confidential. They, they stacked up the evidence. They, then they took it to a higher officer who then turned it over to internal affairs special operations who actually was able to match the DNA um, between Stephanie and the bite mark on Sherry. The two detectives ended up questioning Stephanie where her story was ever-changing. It went from she didn't know... Um, she didn't know John's wife, Sherry, and had never met her to they were having a full-blown love triangle. And finally admitting that there was um, a confrontation between them. And, like, as she realized she was a suspect, she started getting really belligerent. Uh, And she tried to end the interview, but then she was arrested for the murder of Sherry. She was ultimately convicted uh, and sentenced to 27 years. And, I mean, that was just... Like I said, it's a mind-blowing story. This segment is going on 12 minutes, probably one of the longest ever, just because there's so much to this case. Like I said, I, I might just skip the article and just go right to the book. Um, anyways, I'm going to go, and I will be right back. And I'm back. So, we're going to wrap up this episode with another murder. And, you know, the the reason why I chose some of these crimes was because they were fascinating. Um, Anna Delvey, um, the, the McDonald's Forgotten McScam, those are really fascinating to me uh, because they were able to perpetrate a fraud. Yes, people died, but not, well, not, not an Anna Delvey story, but... Um, in the, in the McDonald's story, people died, but it, it wasn't because they were killed. Um, but the murders, some of these murders are just so grotesque and uh, whatever. The case of Shell Colvin... The reason why I pause is because every time I say the last name Colvin, I think of the song Sunny Came Home by Sean Colvin. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's messed with my mind. Um, so, <laughs> um, anyway, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. This is very serious. It's true crime. I'm not supposed to look, be laughing. Um, but the, but the truth is that that's, that's just what it is. So, Shell Colvin was a Manhattanite. She was um, on the wealthier side. And she'd been married to her husband, Roderick, for about 10 years. And on their 10-year anniversary, Roderick came home with a special special request. And, uh, okay. When I, when I was dating a guy last long-term... His special request for me on our anniversary was for me to give him a blowjob. No big deal. I did it all the time. Um, but that's kind of what I I expect from 
from guys. It, that kind of request. Roderick, though, was like, no, I'm going to take this up a notch. Hold my condom. And he asked his wife for permission to cheat on her. That's a little facetious. Um, what he actually asked for was an open relationship. But I don't hear the difference. Shell said no and filed for divorce. She was, she was heartsick and just disgusted. And the marriage wasn't going that well anyway. So once she filed for divorce, Roderick started to freak out because he didn't work. In fact, all throughout the marriage, he didn't really work that much. And she was, so she was the breadwinner. And if she left him, he would be left with nothing. Because chances are, he wasn't going to get custody of their daughter. So, he killed her. And, you know, that, that on its own isn't worthy of being a true crime story. I mean, it is, of course, because someone died and there, there are a lot of emotions at play and, and whatnot. But when I, when I cover a true crime, I like the really, the ones with the big twists and, you know, the kind that Shonda Rhimes would just have a field day with. And this one offers up a doozy of a twist. So, right after they buried Shell, Roderick started dating a new woman. And the police were the police were not really investigating the death. They kind of just assumed that she just slipped in the golden tub and hit her head and died. It, w- it could have been just a very easy open and shut case. But something in the back of the detective's head just kept nagging at him. Um, and the, the family had first um, declined to have an autopsy done for religious reasons. And I'm guessing Roderick knew that they were going to do that, and that's how he um, planned to get away with the murder. But then the, the detectives went back and said, hey, look, we know religious and whatever, but this needs to be looked into. And the family said, okay, yeah, please, please look into this. We loved her. We want to know what happened. So they looked into it, and they started noticing that she didn't die from a a head injury. She had been strangled. Dun, dun, dun. So then the cop was like, all right. You know, now we got to start figuring out who had a motive And lo and behold, they found, they, well, they didn't find, they started looking at Roderick. And they, you know, the family started to say, well, you know, she did file for divorce from him after their anniversary, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the woman he'd been dating, they broke up. 
And she went forward to the cops and said, hey, like, this is what he's going to do. So what was he going to do? Roderick, in his infinite, infinite wisdom, decided that his nine-year-old daughter was going to take the fall for him. You heard me right. He was framing his nine-year-old daughter. Now, what kind of thank you gift do you give for framing someone for murder? I'm asking for Roderick. <laughs> so, what he did is he composed an email saying that she was so sorry that her and her mom had gotten into a big fight and she pushed her really hard into the tub. And that's how she died. Except for they knew that she had been strangled. The the email was obviously never sent. I shouldn't say obviously. The email was never sent. But they did find it in the draft folder in the little girl's email. Roderick Colvin is now on trial in Manhattan for the murder of his wife, Shell. As soon as I get an update on this, I will bring it to you. Um, But again, that's just the kind of case that really tickles my fancy, so to speak. That's going to do it for the true crime episode of Drunk Gossip. As always, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.